You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. I want to start today's episode with some housekeeping, as there are a few fun things happening with the podcast that I want to share. First and foremost, I want to let everyone know that I will be increasing the production of Explorers episodes. My aim is to produce at least three new episodes per month. I would love it to be four, but I'm not really confident in my ability to accomplish that just yet, so I will stick with a commitment of three at this time. This will get you lots more Explorers content for your enjoyment. Second, I want to announce a few updates with the podcast's social media accounts. I've decided to make the Explorers Twitter and Facebook accounts more of a resource and conversation tool. Our hashtag is ExplorersPod, and our Facebook account is facebook.com slash explorerspod. You can find these links on our website, explorerspodcast.com. I would love it if everyone could go there and follow and like the podcast. My goal is to post something every day on each of these accounts, things such as news related to history or recommendations of other podcasts, or films or books or whatever stuff that I think will be appreciated by those who love these great stories of exploration. Also, I hope to engage with you more directly through these mediums, I'd love for people to ask me questions, make comments about the episodes, and even help out with things, such as offering recommendations on good books about a particular subject. Essentially, I hope I can provide you with some cool stuff and get some conversations going. Next, if you like the Explorers podcast, help me out by writing a review at the place that you get your podcast feed from, such as iTunes. The more reviews I get for the podcast, the more the podcast profile is raised, and it gets on the radar of other listeners, like yourself. And another thing. The website, explorerspodcast.com, is always available to you. I post maps and photos and links related to all the episodes. Also, as noted, you'll find links to the podcast Facebook and Twitter pages, plus iTunes. And finally, there is a new link I've added to the main menu on the site. There is now a donate link. Click on that, and you can donate to the Explorers Podcast. I've had quite a few requests from listeners asking how they can help out, and here you go. So if you like the podcast and want to help out, a donation would be appreciated. The money I get mostly goes to paying for books, but there are other costs that crop up, including website hosting, domain name costs, software and hardware purchases, and other miscellaneous items. Ultimately, my goal is to make a little bit of money on the podcast so I can actually justify spending more time on it, which in the end means more episodes for you. So again, if you like the podcast and appreciate the time and effort that I put into this project, and you have a few extra bucks to spare, I'm happy to take them. Just go to the site, explorerspodcast.com, and click on the donate link. There's a PayPal button set for a dollar. If you want to give a buck, awesome. Click on it and go for it. If you want to give a little more, just add the number of $1 donations you want to give. Anything is welcome and appreciated. And one final, final thing. Today's episode is being recorded not far from a nest of very hungry baby robins. And even with the windows closed, these demanding little guys can be quite noisy. So if you hear some chirping and tweeting and cheeping, you are not imagining it. Just consider it an added sound effect for the episode. So that's it. Let us get on with the show. Thanks again for all of your help and support. On November 20th, 1805, an expedition of Americans, called the Corps of Discovery, led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, reached the mouth of the Columbia River on the Pacific Northwest Coast. The expedition had begun in St. Louis a year and a half earlier and had covered roughly 3,800 miles. The trek up the Missouri River, over the Rocky Mountains, and to the western coast of North America has proven to be, arguably, one of the greatest land-based expeditions of discovery in history. 
The expedition west by Lewis and Clark into the unknown wilderness of North America was the culmination of years of planning and execution. It would be a journey that would have enormous scientific, economic, political, and human ramifications. In our upcoming series on Lewis and Clark, we will recount the journey from its inception to its completion. It is an amazing tale, on par with the epic journeys of Magellan, Columbus, and Marco Polo. Today's episode will prepare us for the famous journey. We are going to chunk the episode into five sections. First, we will talk about the history of the region up to the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Second, we will talk about the international and regional powers that were flexing their muscles in the area, including the British, the French, the Spanish, and the Russians, not to mention the native Indian peoples. Third, we will look at the man who is most responsible for the Lewis and Clark expedition, and that is President Thomas Jefferson. Fourth, we will do some background on the stars of the podcast, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. And finally, we will go through the preparations for the journey west, ending up with the expedition getting ready to set out from St. Louis in 1804. So, the best way to begin this amazing story is to give you some historical background of the region. The key geographic element of this area was the Great Mississippi River. By the early 1700s, it was the French who controlled the entire waterway. They set up forts and trading posts up and down the Mississippi, and in doing so, they would lay claim to the lands east and west of the river. As time passed, the French continued to push west, going up various tributaries of the Mississippi, including the Arkansas and Missouri rivers. By 1750, the French claimed not just Canada, but the modern-day states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, Kentucky, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. It was a huge swath of land, and the key economic engine of the region was the fur trade. Furs, primarily beaver pelts, would be shipped down the river to the port of New Orleans, which was founded in 1718. It was a very lucrative business. The fur trade was made possible by working with the native Indians. It was a system the French had worked effectively in Canada and the Ohio Valley. They cultivated relationships with the Indians, who came to the settlements and trading posts on the various rivers, or made deals with the traders and trappers that ventured inland. In exchange for furs, the Indians came to depend on European goods, especially metal goods, items such as knives and hatchets and kettles, and in some cases, weapons. As you can imagine, whoever controlled the fur trade exerted tremendous influence on the Indians, who didn't want their supply of goods to be disrupted. All of this would change in 1763 with the defeat of the French to the British in the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years' War, as it is known outside of the United States. In the wake of their defeat, the French would hand over Canada to England, as well as all lands east of the Mississippi. Also, the French claims to the lands west of the Mississippi, including the key port of New Orleans, were then ceded to Spain, who had been France's ally in the war. Spain was given the territory as compensation for being forced to surrender Florida to the English. The territory Spain was given was called Louisiana, and would include most of what is modern-day Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota, Wyoming, and Montana, plus parts of Minnesota, North Dakota, Colorado, Texas, and New Mexico, Essentially, Louisiana consisted of the lands between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. The southern border of this area was always a bit murky, but if you find the Red River on a map, that's sort of a good spot to pick as the southern border. But again, it's very rough and will come into dispute, but you get the basic idea. Louisiana would be divided up into two sections, Upper Louisiana, which was everything north of the Arkansas River, and Lower Louisiana, which was the area below the Arkansas. The latter territory consists of much of modern-day Louisiana and the southern half of Arkansas. By the way, if you want to see a map of all of this, please go to our website, explorerspodcast.com. So, in the wake of all these territory swaps, the city of St. Louis was founded in 1764, primarily by French merchants and traders looking to flee from the English. St. Louis is located on the western bank of the Mississippi, meaning its lands were controlled by Spain, not England. The Louisiana Territory would be under Spanish dominion until 1800. During this time, things were pretty much the same as it had been when the French had been the primary European power. The Spanish government were content to enjoy the economic games of the region and worked, for the most part, harmoniously with the French traders and trappers who now lived in the colony. However, the migration of Americans west after the Revolution would gradually cause tensions to rise between the United States and Spain. Then, in 1800, events in Europe would cause dramatic repercussions in North America. 
Spain, under pressure from the ambitious Napoleon Bonaparte and the powerful French Empire, would sign the Third Treaty of El Defonso. The treaty, which was concluded in secret, ceded control of the Louisiana Territory from Spain back to France. The reason for all of this was that Napoleon Bonaparte had dreams of re-establishing the French Empire in the Americas. The Louisiana Territory, in particular New Orleans, would play a large part in his plans. However, before retaking Louisiana, Napoleon first had to deal with the colony of Haiti, which was in revolt. The campaign would end in disaster for the French, as more than 10,000 troops would die, most from yellow fever. Then, as war began to spread in Europe, Napoleon gave up his dream of a North American empire in order to take care of things closer to home. Although the French technically owned Louisiana, Bonaparte understood that his hold on the region was tenuous. The Spanish still maintained bureaucratic control of Louisiana, and they resented having been forced to give up the area in the first place. And the Americans and the British both eyed the area as well. So, not wanting to lose control of the territory without getting something in return, the French were willing to listen when the Americans came calling about buying the port of New Orleans. The port was a critical link in the growing American trade empire in the West. American goods would flow to New Orleans via the Mississippi. At times, the Americans and Spanish would come into conflict in the area. More than once, Spanish officials blocked American merchants from using the port of New Orleans to unload their cargoes. Thus, American political and business leaders eyed a way to get control of New Orleans, and many thought that war was inevitable. However, with the transfer of control of Louisiana from Spain to France, plus France's defeat in Haiti, the United States saw an opportunity to add New Orleans to the American portfolio, but not by using guns. President Thomas Jefferson would send Robert Livingston to Paris to open negotiations with the French for the purchase of New Orleans. The Americans had been willing to pay $10 million for the port, but, much to their surprise, the French offered the entire Louisiana Territory to the Americans for $15 million. The Americans took a look at the proposal and said, Deal done. The Louisiana Purchase was signed on April 30, 1803. For the French, they were rid of a territory that they really didn't think they could hold on to. Plus, the $15 million was a great help to the nation's beleaguered treasury. So, the United States had just bought over 800,000 square miles of land. That basically doubled the size of the fledgling nation. So, what do you do with your new big backyard? Well, that's a good question. And the answer is, you need to stake a claim to it, because even though you have a piece of paper saying the area is yours, that doesn't make it true. The United States may have bought the Louisiana Territory, but that didn't mean that everyone would just step aside and let them take possession. So the year is 1803, and numerous international powers were making efforts, directly and indirectly, to gain influence and control over the Louisiana Territory. Let us go through the roster of suspects. First, we can put aside the French. Although there were many French citizens in the area, from New Orleans all the way up to Canada, Napoleon had cashed his North American Empire check and was out of the picture. Next, that brings us to the British. The British eyed the Louisiana Territory from their bases in Canada. They had inherited the network of French traders and the critical relationships with the Indians, and had gradually pushed further west and south as the supply of beaver pelts diminished due to overtrapping. The great trading companies of the era, such as Hudson's Bay Trading Company and the Northwest Company, had made inroads into the Midwest and the Plains, including what is today Minnesota and the Dakotas. The British wanted to solidify their growing influence in these areas and push even further west, toward the Rocky Mountains. Next up was the Spanish. Save for Brazil, Spain controlled most of South and Central America, plus to the north there was California, Texas, and New Mexico. When the Spanish took control of Louisiana in 1763, they set up two lucrative trade routes. One trade route was the Mississippi River, down to New Orleans. The other was from St. Louis to Santa Fe, where goods were sent overland to the Empire in the south. Losing the Louisiana Territory was a big economic blow to Spain. In fact, the Spanish saw the Louisiana Territory as a natural extension to their empire. As noted, the United States and Spain would nearly come to war on numerous occasions in the late 1700s and the early 1800s over the area. Also, many Spanish officials would dispute exactly what territory France had sold to America. There were many arguments that Louisiana was nothing more than New Orleans and St. Louis and the areas near the Mississippi River. And Spain would point out that, according to the treaty they had signed with France, the French were not allowed to turn over the Louisiana Territory to another power. Thus, many argued that the sale was illegal. For Spain, they feared a migration of America into their former colony, migrations that would threaten their own trade routes and their empire. 
And finally on this list, there are the Russians. You're probably saying, the Russians? What do they have to do with the Louisiana Territory? And the answer is really nothing. But I include them here because Louisiana was adjacent to what I'll call the Northwest Territory, or the Pacific Northwest. This was the area west of the Rocky Mountains, made up of present-day Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. This area was mostly empty, save for Indians. Europeans had explored some of the areas on the west coast, but no one had settled it yet. So, while not part of America or claimed by any other nation, Thomas Jefferson understood the vast economic value of the region. And the reason for that is that Jefferson and others imagined a nation that stretched from ocean to ocean. And if someone could establish an all-water route across the continent, it would present massive economic opportunities. It was the fabled Northwest Passage that explorers had been searching for for centuries. The likely candidates for this all-water route were the Columbia River in the west and the Missouri in the east. Many thought they would connect at some point. In fact, one popular theory of the day was that all the major rivers of the west, the Arkansas, the Missouri, the Colorado, the Columbia, etc., etc., were all fed by the same source, some mythical lake in the Rocky Mountains. The Russians were a threat as they had set up trading posts along the Alaskan coast. The fear was that they would venture down south and lay claim to the Columbia River area, which would give them control of the region and ruin any potential all-water route to the Pacific. I also want to mention that the northwest region was eyed up by the Spanish, as they could push north from California, and let us not forget the British, who had their own idea of finding an all-water route across the country. In fact, I should add that in 1793, a British expedition, under the lead of Alexander Mackenzie, would accomplish an overland trek to the Pacific coast through Canada. However, Mackenzie found no all-water route. There was not even a viable trade route due to the dense wilderness, mountains, and rugged rivers. However, that didn't diminish the British desires to control the western region of the continent, and Mackenzie's journey would give the British a claim to the area, however tenuous. As a note, a book by Mackenzie about his expedition would be published in 1801. Thomas Jefferson would get hold of the book and devour its contents, all the while fretting that the British wanted to take control of the region. But we will get to that a bit later in this episode. Last thing I want to mention about the Pacific Northwest area was that by the 1800s there was a burgeoning and lucrative trade of North American furs to Asia. The British got the furs from Canada, shipped them to Europe, and then on to Asia where they were sold for huge profits. Enterprising nations dreamed of dominating the Columbia River area and the region's fur trade. It would then be much cheaper to send the furs directly to Asia from the Pacific Northwest rather than the Canada to England to Asia model. So, the British, the Spanish, and the Russians all had eyes on the Louisiana Territory and or the Pacific Northwest. These were all threats to the United States' claim to the region. Next, I want to talk about the man who would be the primary catalyst for the Lewis and Clark expedition, and that was Thomas Jefferson. Born in Virginia in 1743, Jefferson was the principal author of the Declaration of Independence and is arguably the most important and visionary of the American Founding Fathers, He would serve two terms as president. But politics aside, Thomas Jefferson was a man of the Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment was an intellectual and philosophical movement in the 18th century, promoting individual liberty, tolerance, fraternity, and constitutional government. For many, including Jefferson, it was an extension of the scientific revolution of the 1600s. Jefferson envisioned an American nation that spread from Atlantic to Pacific, a nation established on the principles of democracy, religious freedom, and individual rights. He did not see the lands to the west as colonies, but as extensions of the United States, fellow territories equal in stature, once they had been settled. And that vision was where he differed from so many, who saw these lands as mere colonies, just a place to rule and exploit financially, but little more. Jefferson understood that to expand the American nation, one would need to explore the region. And even before sending out Lewis and Clark on their expedition, he had tried to find out more about the western lands. In 1786, John Ledyard, an American who had sailed with the famed explorer Captain James Cook, convinced Jefferson that he could travel from Moscow to Siberia, then cross over to Alaska, and go down the western coast of the continent and reach the Columbia River. From there, he would head east, eventually reaching the United States. Jefferson supported this endeavor. Ledyard would set out and reach Siberia, but then he would get arrested by the Russians, who deported him back to Poland, and that ended the scheme. Another expedition supported by Jefferson was one he proposed to the American Philosophical Society of Philadelphia in 1793. Even though the region was controlled by Spain, Jefferson wanted to have someone go up the Missouri River 
and try and find a connection to the Columbia River, or any other river, and reach the Pacific Ocean. An expedition was put together under the command of a Frenchman, André Michaud. The choice of Michaud was very Jefferson-like, as the man was a botanist, astronomer, and ethnologist, that is, a man of science and the Enlightenment. However, before Michaud could get started, it was discovered that he was a French spy. His real goal was to raise a force of men to attack Spanish possessions in the West. With that info in hand, Jefferson put a kibosh on the expedition. On a fun side note, when Jefferson was organizing this expedition, 18-year-old Meriwether Lewis, whose family was friends with Jefferson, volunteered to lead the expedition. While Jefferson admired Lewis, he was far too young and raw for such a task, but he would not be forgotten. I also want to mention that there was one other American expedition organized to explore the Louisiana Territory. This one was dispatched in 1790 under the orders of U.S. Secretary of War Henry Knox. It was a secret expedition led by Lieutenant John Armstrong. However, Armstrong reached the Mississippi and promptly figured out that he was in no way prepared for what lay ahead, and thus the expedition never got started. So, Jefferson had this vision of an America that extended from ocean to ocean. Captain James Cook's voyage in 1780 had given the world the basic dimensions of the North American continent. It was about 3,000 miles wide, but much of it was a big blank on the map. Jefferson needed to fill that map in. Jefferson would become president in 1801 and conclude the purchase of the Louisiana Territory two years later. Many in the nation, including its political rivals, the Federalists, saw the purchase as a folly, $15 million for something no one really possessed. It was nothing but deserts and plains and Indians. Fighting over this remote region would not only drain the treasury, but would lead to conflict and war. But Jefferson thought that if an all-water route could be found to the Pacific, it would change everything. To do that, he needed knowledge. He needed to know about the Indians that lived there, what were their dispositions toward America, and what influence did the British have on these tribes. He also wanted to know what kinds of animals and minerals could be found, were there farmlands for future expansion, and where would be good locations for forts and trading posts. If he had that knowledge, it would be the first step in putting a physical claim to the region before anyone else could. Now, he just needed to have someone go on such an expedition. And that leads us to our next section, a look at the stars of our podcast, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusion supply. Let us start with Meriwether Lewis, because it was Lewis who was really the commander of the Corps of Discovery and the man groomed by Jefferson to lead the expedition. Meriwether Lewis was born in Albemarle County, Virginia, on August 18, 1774. His parents were William Lewis and Lucy Meriwether. He had an older sister and a younger brother. Lewis was from a respectable, old, prosperous Virginia family, aristocratic and tied into the economic and political world of the day. The 2,000-acre family estate, Locust Hill, was seven miles from Chancellorsville, not far from Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, who was a friend of the Lewis family. Thomas Jefferson would note that the family had a reputation for melancholy and hypochondria, a polite way of saying that depression ran through the family. It was an issue that would afflict Meriwether Lewis at times in his life. Lewis's father, William, would become an officer in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. However, while visiting his family in 1779, disaster would strike. While trying to cross the swollen Rivanna River on horseback, William Lewis and his horse would get swept away. Lewis would catch pneumonia from the incident and die two days later. Meriwether Lewis's mother, Lucy, would remarry in 1780 to Thomas Marks. The two would have two children, a boy and a girl. From his mother, Lewis developed an intense hatred for the British, who had looted and burned much of the countryside in their home county during the war. Also from his mother, he picked up an interest in herbs and medicines. Many people would come to the woman for medicinal remedies, such as salves and herbal concoctions. The skill would help Lewis later when he embarked on his fame expedition. 
1782 or 83, Lewis and his family packed up and moved to Georgia to settle on some land Thomas Marks had acquired. For the next few years, Lewis would grow up on the frontier of America. He would learn to hunt and fish and survive in the wilderness. He would interact with the local Cherokee Indians, and he developed a reputation as a curious and brave young man. He was said to have loved to roam, a trait that would often be used to describe him. While Lewis loved living on the frontier, it was decided that, as the eldest son of the family, he should get proper schooling. He was, after all, the owner of the family's plantation, Locust Hill, back in Virginia. Lewis would spend the next few years in Virginia receiving a formal education conducted by private tutors. He would learn enough to become a respectable gentleman farmer. As a plantation owner, Lewis was described as a good farmer with an excellent attention to detail. He was said to have been courteous and well-informed. He was also said to be a fearless writer, and as a youth he loved to wander, or ramble, as Thomas Jefferson put it. As with many men his age, Lewis was not adverse to drinking, a habit that will become an issue with him at times in his life. However, Lewis's life would take a major shift when, in 1794, the Whiskey Rebellion broke out. The Whiskey Rebellion was a response to a federal whiskey tax, which many in the West saw as unfair, even illegal. As a result, many people in the West resisted the tax and threatened the tax collectors. The federal government responded by raising an army of 13,000 militiamen provided by the states of Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. George Washington took command of the force. Interesting note, that would be the first and last time a sitting U.S. president would take to the field at the head of an American army. One of those signing up to join the Virginia militia was Meriwether Lewis. Lewis would say he was proud to, quote, support the glorious cause of liberty and my country, end quote. The Whiskey Rebellion would collapse in the face of such a force. However, Meriwether Lewis would discover something very interesting. Despite the poor conditions he experienced while being in the field, he liked being a soldier. And in 1795, he would join the army and quickly become an officer. Over the next five years, Lewis would travel throughout the western United States on various assignments. He would do reconnaissance in Ohio, deliver messages to outposts such as Detroit, and meet and interact with the Indians of the region. Also, for a short time early in his career, Meriwether Lewis would come under the command of Lieutenant William Clark, who was three years his senior. Little is known about these early interactions, but it is not hard to imagine that the two men admired each other due to their common traits. Both were tall, strong, respected Virginians, raised on the American frontier, proud of their young nation, and eager to make their mark on the world. The initial interactions would lay the seeds for the two men's famous journey almost a decade later. Lewis was promoted to captain in 1800 and became a regimental paymaster that same year. He developed a reputation for thoroughness, accuracy, and honesty. As with many soldiers on the frontier, he also developed a reputation as a drinker. And like many Southerners, he was known to have a thin skin and was quick to take offense. And then, in 1801, Thomas Jefferson would become President of the United States. When Jefferson came to the presidency, he was a widower, and his children were all grown. So when it came to appoint someone as his aide and secretary, Jefferson selected Meriwether Lewis. Jefferson had been a family friend for decades, and saw many of the traits of the new American Republic in Lewis. He was strong and young and proud of his country. In many ways, it was a father-son relationship, but more than that, it was that of a mentor and a favorite student. It is not known if Jefferson already had its eye on Lewis as the man to go west to explore, but I would not bet against it. Lewis would spend the next two years living at the presidential mansion in Philadelphia, the only non-servant in the residence other than Jefferson. He was just 27 years old at the time he took up the post. Lewis would eat up his time with the president, a man that he adored and admired. He strove to emulate his hero. So by this time, Meriwether Lewis was already a first-rate soldier, frontiersman, and leader, but from Jefferson, he took on many other aspects. Jefferson would bring Lewis into the orbit of other enlightened men, men who valued science and philosophy and freedom. Through Jefferson and the extensive library that he had, Lewis would learn subjects such as botany, geography, cartography, history, and literature. He also became a good writer, a skill that will come in handy on his expedition to the Pacific. Also, during this time, Lewis grew as an individual due to the circles he now ran in, Jefferson was reputed to be one of the greatest entertainers of his day. He had the best food, the best wine, and the best conversation. To get an invite to the president's residence was a great coup. Even his enemies loved to come to his table. Men and women from all over the world passed through at this time, people that young Lewis would get to meet and learn from and interact with. It should be noted that the relationship was not one-sided. Lewis would become indispensable to Jefferson, 
In fact, he even delivered Jefferson's first State of the Union address. So, Meriwether Lewis was hanging out in Philadelphia with the president, being groomed to lead an expedition into the Louisiana Territory. But before we get to the expedition's creation, I want to talk about William Clark, the latter half of Lewis and Clark. William Clark was born on August 1, 1770, in Caroline County, Virginia. His parents were John and Ann Rogers Clark. He came from a large family, the ninth of ten children. The family were planters, and five of his older brothers would fight in the American Revolution. One of Clark's brothers was George Rogers Clark, an American general who had led U.S. forces in the Northwest Territory during the Revolutionary War, which helped the United States secure the area between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. He was called the Conqueror of the Old Northwest. William Clark moved to Kentucky in 1785, amongst the first Americans to settle in the Ohio Valley. Even more than Lewis, Clark was a frontiersman. Hunting, fishing, tracking, Clark took it up with gusto, and he was good at it. Clark joined the militia in 1789 at the age of 19, and he would fight in the Northwest Indian Wars. He was made a captain in 1790 and moved to the regular army in 1791. He would take part in the Battle of the Fallen Timbers in 1794, commanding a company of riflemen. The battle would help secure the Ohio Valley for the United States and quell the Indian threats in the region, as well as dampen British meddling in the area. Clark would be a first-rate soldier, learning how to not just lead men, but to build forts and draw maps. He was successful when interacting and negotiating with the Indians of the territory, and he had a reputation for being smart and fair and honest. As noted, Clark would meet Meriwether Lewis in 1795. The two would form a friendship. In 1796, Clark would resign from the army due to health reasons, most likely bouts with malaria. So with that, William Clark went to the life as a farmer and planter on his family lands in Kentucky. And that takes us to the final section of today's episode, the preparation for the historic journey west. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thomas Jefferson was now president, and the struggles of the French in Haiti had opened up the door to the Louisiana Territory for the United States. In 1802, with the help of Meriwether Lewis, Jefferson drew up plans for an American expedition into Louisiana. In January of 1803, Jefferson got Congress to appropriate $2,500 for the project. The expedition would be called the Corps of Discovery, and in the mind of Thomas Jefferson, there was only one man to lead it, 29-year-old Captain Meriwether Lewis. Jefferson would have this to say about the man who he had been grooming for the job. Quote, Captain Lewis is brave, prudent, habituated to the woods, and familiar with the Indian manners and character. He is not regularly educated, but he possesses a great mass of accurate observation on all the subjects of nature which present themselves here. He will therefore readily select those only which shall be new. End quote. The goal of the expedition was officially one of commerce. The idea was to discover a path into the West, hopefully all the way to the Pacific Ocean. The expedition would open up the fur trade market to the Americans, bring news of the American purchase of the area to the Indians, regulate foreign traders, a.k.a. the British, and determine future agricultural opportunities. This appealed to Americans of all stripes. Merchants and investors saw an economic opportunity. It would open up potential new lands for speculators, as well as settlers. And usurping the fur trade from the British? Well, that would just be fun. I do want to mention that there was an element of the American society that did not like the Louisiana Purchase. Jefferson's rivals, the Federalists, saw the move as a waste of money and resources. Plus, they did not want to risk a confrontation with England. The Federalists were generally supported by the merchants and bankers, while Jefferson's Republican Party had the backing of the yeoman farmers. It was more of a populist movement than the Federalists, who were dominated by New England elites. But for Jefferson, this was part of the American destiny. It was about finding a water route to the West Coast and expanding the American nation. It was that insatiable appetite of finding out what was over the horizon. For Meriwether Lewis, the next year would be one of learning and planning. He was heading into the wilderness, and while he could survive there, and even thrive, Jefferson wanted to bring back as much information as possible. And this was not just about the maps and the Indians, but much more. This would be about documenting the animals, the plants, and the geography. With regard to the Indians, it wasn't just about who was friendly and who was not, 
but it was about studying their cultures and habits. It was all a very Jeffersonian take on exploration. It would be an enlightened endeavor. To that end, Lewis would be instructed in a myriad of fields. He would learn how to use scientific instruments like a sextant. Jefferson himself taught Lewis botany, and Lewis learned the Linnean system of affixing binomial Latin names. By the way, I hope that made sense. I'm guessing it means Lewis knew how to give plants and animals a proper Latin name. Anyhow, astronomy, cartography, medicine, Meriwether Lewis took them up in earnest. Many of these subjects he already had a passing knowledge of, but now he was doing a deep dive in all these fields and more. Lewis's biographer, Stephen Ambrose, wrote that Lewis basically got a liberal arts degree during this time. The initial plan was to keep the expedition small, maybe 10 to 12 soldiers and a single officer. This would keep things cheap and out of the scrutiny of Congress, because remember, Jefferson didn't want to give his political enemies, the Federalists, any reason to thwart the expedition, as they believed it to be a fool's errand. To prepare for the upcoming expedition, maps were drawn up of the known territories. At this time, the furthest west that was known was the Mandan Villages, the home of the Mandan Indians, which was up the Missouri River at what is today Bismarck, North Dakota. Beyond that, the existence of the Rocky Mountains was known, but little was understood of just how massive the Rockies were. In Alexander Mackenzie's book that he had written about his expedition across the continent in 1793, Mackenzie had crossed the Continental Divide at a spot that was very low, around 3,000 feet. Jefferson, and other experts, had read Mackenzie's book and concluded that this was the norm, and that the Rockies would be not much bigger than the Appalachian Mountains. It was a mistake that explorers would make for years. The plan was to depart from St. Louis, then travel up the Missouri River into the Mandan villages. The Mandan Indians were in regular contact with the British traders who came down from Canada. From the Mandan villages, the expedition would then continue up the Missouri, and if everything went well, cross over the Rocky Mountains and end up coming down the Columbia River to the Pacific Ocean. And even if the Missouri and Columbia didn't connect, it was assumed that it would not be that difficult to cross the mountains and get to the other side. Everyone was in for a big surprise. So, to prepare for the journey, Lewis would procure supplies. For the expected interactions with the Indians, there would be presents, such as beads of various colors, tobacco, thimbles, scissors, thread, silk, fishing hooks, paint, knives, combs, jewelry, as well as commemorative medals, tomahawk pipes, and flags. Also for the expedition, Lewis purchased provisions, mathematical instruments, medicinal supplies, clothing, and weapons. This included ink powder, pencils, lead, axes, flint, steel, salt, mosquito netting, linen, field tables, candles, soap, as well as oil skins to protect it all. He also bought nearly 200 pounds of dried soup, the single largest expenditure of the entire expedition. As for weapons, the chief item was the U.S. Army 54 caliber 33-inch barrel rifle. These flintlock rifles were reliable and of high quality. A good marksman could hit a target at 100 yards with one of these. And Lewis knew that he would need them for protection as well as hunting. As a note, Lewis purchased far more rifles than he needed. We can assume that he wanted some extras, but in reality, he was probably understanding that his expedition would have to be larger than the 10 to 12 men that he originally had budgeted for. Another item that Lewis and Jefferson decided to include was a custom-made collapsible iron-framed boat. The idea was that once the waters of the Missouri became impassable due to rapids and falls, the iron frame would be hauled upstream and put together with animal skins around the frame. The frame weighed only 44 pounds and would have the ability to carry 1,770 pounds. Finally, the other major item that Lewis contracted for was a keelboat. The boat, which was specially designed by Lewis and Jefferson, would be built in Pittsburgh and sailed down the Ohio River to the Mississippi. The keelboat was shallow-drafted so it could navigate through low waters. So as the summer of 1803 rolled around, Lewis packed all the stuff he had bought and shipped it west. However, one thing that was becoming clear to Lewis as he planned the journey was that he would need another officer for the expedition, someone to be a co-commander. The man he had in mind was William Clark. The choice of Clark was inspired. While he may not have had the education and training of Lewis, he was an outstanding frontiersman. He was meticulous and detailed in his work. He had combat experience, he was a first-rate shot, and he was a proven leader. Clark quickly accepted the role, and it was a perfect match. Two men respected and trusted one another, and that was one of the key reasons their expedition would be so successful. Clark would be offered the position of captain and co-commander of the expedition. It was a rather extraordinary offer by Lewis. I mean, Lewis had the top job. Why would he offer someone else equal footing? Co-commands are fraught with danger. We can only speculate that Lewis trusted Clark implicitly, 
and felt that they could coexist in a manner that would benefit everyone. In the end, he was right, and the decision would work out perfectly. As a note, Lewis would technically be commander of the expedition, but once things got underway, the two were equals in the eyes of each other and the men under their command. So that summer, Lewis would receive his official orders from Jefferson for the expedition. They were as follows, quote, The object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as by its course and communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, whether the Columbia, Oregon, Colorado, or any other river may offer the most direct and practical water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce. End quote. Of course, there was much more than that. Lewis was to take careful observations of latitude and longitude and describe remarkable points on the river, especially river mouths and rapids. He was to find out about the Indian nations, their names, their numbers, their possessions, their relation to other tribes, and their occupations, meaning were they hunters or farmers or whatever. Lewis was to study their culture, including religion, laws, and customs. He was to treat the Indians in a friendly and conciliatory manner. He was to relate to them the size and strength of America, as well as tell them about his peaceful intentions. Lewis was also told to arrange for some of the Indian leaders to visit Washington, D.C., a way to put on display the power of the United States. Lewis was also ordered to back down rather than get in any fights, especially if the odds were not good. This reflects some concern that Lewis was reckless and a risk-taker. Lewis was also to keep a journal taking note of the soil, the vegetation, the animals, the flora, the fauna, and the minerals. All the while, he was to map what he found. Finally, when Lewis reached the Pacific coast, if possible, he was to seek out a ship. Traders would come to the Pacific Northwest in the summer and return to Washington by water, or at least in a copy of his journals he had kept. The scope of the orders were massive, but in the end, it was go west, find an all-water route to the Pacific, and write down everything you see. To accomplish all of this, Jefferson gave Lewis a letter of credit for getting what he needed in St. Louis. It was basically an open-ended line of credit. This was needed as the cost of the expedition was rising beyond what had been allocated by Congress. But to Jefferson, it was necessary. He was getting his coveted journey to the Pacific. He didn't want to let money problems cause it to fail. So, the plan for the expedition was to sail down the Ohio River in the new keelboat by late July and head up the Missouri River in the fall, making at least a couple hundred miles up the river before winter set in. However, Lewis's boatmaker would prove to be unreliable, and the keelboat wouldn't be ready until late August. By the way, the keelboat was specially designed by Lewis and Jefferson. It was 55 feet long, 8 feet wide, and had a shallow draft. It had a mast with a sail and would carry 12 tons of cargo. The keelboat could be rowed, sailed, pushed, or pulled. While Lewis waited for this keelboat to be completed, he would add the first member of the Corps of Discovery. Well, really an unofficial member. It was a dog, a large black Newfoundland, which he bought in Pittsburgh for $20. His name was Seaman. As Lewis prepared to depart Pittsburgh, he and Clark were looking for men they deemed suitable for the Corps of Discovery. As word of the expedition spread, men sought out the two captains asking to join the team. There would be no shortage of volunteers. Both the commanders of the Corps of Discovery understood how important selecting these men would be. This was not a simple mission that would be finished in a few months, or even a year. This was going to be a long, dangerous, and difficult trek into the wild. The men of the Corps of Discovery would initially be soldiers. They would be required to be unmarried, be in prime physical condition, have excellent wilderness skills, and be considered first-rate soldiers. They would have to hunt and row and withstand the rigors of a journey that would take two years or longer. These men were promised land grants as a bonus for volunteering. It can't be stressed how critical these decisions were for Lewis and Clark. They could not have malcontents and slackers. They needed men committed to the expedition. Even in Pittsburgh, Lewis was taking on men for his journey down the river on a trial basis, testing them out to see who might make the cut. Clark was also out recruiting men and would get nine of the core numbers from Louisville. So late August came around, Lewis's keelboat was finally ready, and the young Virginian, along with his dog Seaman, would set sail down the Ohio River. On August 31, 1803, Lewis would make the first entry in the now-famed journals of Lewis and Clark. It said, quote, left Pittsburgh this day at 11 o'clock with a party of 11 hands, seven of which are soldiers, a pilot and three young men on trial they have proposed to go with me throughout the voyage, End quote. The keelboat stopped three miles downstream to visit some of the locals and almost started with a tragedy. For the trip, Lewis had bought an air gun, a pneumatic rifle that produced 5 to 600 PSI. He reported you could shoot accurately with it up to 55 yards. 
he had bought the air gun to impress the Indians. However, one of the locals accidentally discharged the rifle and hit a woman. Lewis reported that blood gushed from her temple, but it would turn out that it was just a graze, nastier looking than in reality. Progress would be slow down the Ohio, as the river levels were low at this time of year. Lewis bought a riverboat called a pirogue, or a piro, to help haul the supplies. Bigger than a standard canoe, the pirogue would lighten the load of the keelboat. He would later add a second pirogue to his small fleet. Lewis would reach Marietta, Ohio on September 13th. After that, he would get to Cincinnati, where he would rest for a week as his men were already suffering from illnesses, including malaria. Lewis had bought Peruvian bark in powder form as a way to help counter the effects of malaria. The bark had alkaloids, including quinine. Quinine helps manage malaria, but it does not cure it. About 20 miles from Cincinnati, Lewis would visit Big Bone Lick, Kentucky, which, by the way, is an awesome name. I mean, Big Bone Lick, how cool is that? Today there is a Big Bone Lick State Park, an historic site, and I want to visit it just to say I've been to Big Bone Lick. Anyhow, I digress. So at Big Bone Lick was someone who had found some mammoth bones. President Jefferson wanted more information about these bones and asked Lewis to stop by for a visit. Lewis would do so and write a 2,000-plus word report describing the bones. To be honest, this is really not relevant to our story, but it demonstrates Lewis's dedication and thoroughness. A lot of explorers we learn about in this podcast are there for fame and glory, and mostly money. But Lewis was writing pages and pages about dinosaur bones. This was important to him, and he would throw himself into it with all of his heart and soul. As I said earlier, this would be an enlightened expedition, one not just of geographic discovery, but of scientific as well. As Lewis headed down the Ohio, it became increasingly clear that he would not be able to depart from St. Louis in the fall. He had too many things to do yet, most importantly filling out his contingent of troops to go with him. On October 14th, Lewis arrived in Clarksville, Indiana, opposite Louisville. Here, he finally met up with William Clark, who was visiting his older brother, General George Rogers Clark. The famed Lewis and Clark were now together. The rest of October was used to recruit more men for the expedition. Clark would bring in seven soldiers he deemed worthy, and Lewis had already settled on two others. These would be the first nine members of the Corps of Discovery. Another man who was part of the expedition was York, Clark's slave. He was described as a big, strong man, and he would be Clark's lifelong companion. He would accompany the Corps of Discovery for the entirety of its journey. Quick sidetrack. It should be noted that Lewis and Clark, as well as Thomas Jefferson, were slaveholders. It is often a massive contradiction, embracing liberty and freedom at the same time as slavery. Jefferson was reportedly appalled by slavery, yet he had slaves. Jefferson believed that slavery was too integrated into the culture to simply abolish it, but he believed those who followed him would end it. After all, the enlightened man, I use quotes there, could see the moral and human tragedy that was slavery. Logic and reason would lead to the abolishment of the institution. At least, that was the idea. Too bad logic and reason get abandoned in the face of greed. Anyhow, end of sidetrack. So, men were flocking to Clarksville to join the Corps of Discovery. Lewis and Clark were ruthless in their decision-making, only taking the best of the best. Also, by this time, Lewis was not hiding the fact that the Corps would be much larger than the original dozen or so approved members. Lewis was quoted as saying that as many as 60 men would be selected, although how many would actually go all the way to the Pacific Ocean was a different matter. Also, Jefferson would give Lewis permission to add non-military people to the expedition as needed. These would be people who had an expertise that Lewis might not find from the ranks of the army. At one point, he entertained the idea of bringing along a doctor, but ultimately nixed the idea. Lewis would ultimately serve as the Corps physician. One man that was added to the expedition at this time was George Druyer, a famous Tennessee woodsman. Druyer was the son of a French-Canadian father and a Shawnee mother. He was a hunter, trapper, and scout, fluent in French, English, and sign language, plus several Indian languages. He would sign on as the Corps interpreter for $25 a month. On November 11th, Lewis and Clark would reach Fort Massac, just 35 miles from the Mississippi River. Two more men would be added to the Corps. On November 13th, Lewis was struck by malaria. In addition to Peruvian bark, another medicine used for malaria was something called Rush's Pills. Named after Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, Rush's Pills, also known as Thunderclappers, were made up of more than 50% mercury and were a powerful laxative. They produced a heavy sweat and helped expel all the junk out of the body. They were especially effective at combating constipation and abdominal pains. 
Of course, with the mercury content, too many were a danger, but the mercury would pass through a person quickly, so that wasn't much of an issue. Interesting note, I have read that the core of discovery was tracked by historians by their mercury poop. Mercury doesn't break down, and thus evidence of mercury in the soil would provide evidence of where the members of the expedition stopped to go to the bathroom during their journey. Just thought I'd share that interesting tidbit. So, the expedition headed downriver, eventually reaching where the Ohio meets the Mississippi. For the first time in the expedition, Lewis and Clark took measurements of the river and made celestial observations. Lewis found the chronometer that he had brought to be unreliable in the wilderness, so he was forced to use different means to calculate the time of day. The process is tedious and complicated, and involves picking a bright star as a fixed point against which you measure the moon's easterly motion. On this first observation, they would stay out past midnight, something that would become the norm for the journey. On November 16th, the American expedition crossed over the Mississippi River. While the United States had bought the territory of Louisiana, the official change of power had not yet taken place. In fact, the Spanish still ruled, as the French had never officially taken control. On November 20th, the Corps headed upstream to St. Louis. They would reach the army post of Kakaskia, about 60 miles south of St. Louis, on November 28th. In addition to asking for more volunteers, Lewis took on more supplies, including gunpowder. On December 4th, Clark took the boats about a dozen miles north of St. Louis to the mouth of the Wood River, just opposite the mouth of the Missouri. It would be the location for the company's winter quarters. Meanwhile, Lewis went to the village of Cahokia across from St. Louis on December 7th. He met with the Spanish Lieutenant Governor of Upper Louisiana, Colonel Charles de Holt de Lassus. I probably butchered that, but close enough. Lewis asked for permission to sail up the Missouri, but was denied. As noted, the transfer of the sovereignty had not taken place yet, and the Spanish were not about to help the Americans in any fashion. The Spanish colonel would later write this about Lewis, quote, I believe that his mission has no other object than to discover the Pacific Ocean following the Missouri, end quote. And he would be right. So, Lewis and Clark were in St. Louis for the winter of 1803-04. The expedition would build winter quarters as they gathered more qualified volunteers, added supplies, and collected information about the journey that lay ahead. The plan was to head up the Missouri River in the spring. I think this is a good spot to wrap up this first episode of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. Next time, we will meet some of the key members of the Corps of Discovery and discuss some of the local and international intrigues that occupied their world. And then, in the spring, we will send the Corps off on their fabled journey up the Missouri River. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode. We will see you next time. As always, thank you very much for listening.